2: Welcome to Silver Linings, part of the next real family of film podcasts on True Story FM. Have you ever liked or even loved a movie that everyone else just seems to hate? Well, you are not alone, my friend. We look at movies that are often panned by critics and audiences to see if their hate is warranted. Sure, we'll talk about what might be broken, but more important, we talk about what really works in these films with the hope that we change some minds along the way perhaps even yours? So, sit back, relax, and let's take the guilt out of guilty pleasures. This is Silver Linings. Hello, I'm Ray, your eternal optimist.
3: And I'm Ocean. For this episode of Silver Linings, we'll be taking a look at 2010's The Wolfman.
1: Twenty five years ago, that my father found him. He was torn to pieces and half eaten. Whatever did it was big, and buckshot couldn't kill it. After that, my father went home and cast silver bullets.
2: Wouldn't leave the house on a full moon from then on. All right. The Wolfman. I don't know if you know this ocean, but I am a huge, huge fan of Universal monster movies. Particularly, wow!
3: You've been keeping that a secret
2: all this time. I know.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows. Come out of the closet. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so, I might be slightly biased. I'll try not to be when it comes to this film, but since this is a remake, I thought that it would be prudent to just real quick, give a brief synopsis of the original 1941 film and also a synopsis of the one that we'll be talking about today. Just so yeah, please do. If you haven't seen the original film or if it's been a while, you have a little bit of a refresher. So in the original 1941, the wolf man, The first big difference is that it takes place in present day for that time. And after learning of the death of his brother, Larry Talbot or Lawrence Talbot returns to his ancestral home in Wales. And he tries to reconcile with his estranged father, Sir John Talbot, who is played in the old film by Claude Rains. And while he's there, Larry becomes interested in this local girl named Gwen Conliffe, who runs an antique shop. And to sort of get to know her, he goes in with the pretext that he's going to buy this silver-headed walking stick with a wolf on it. And she tells him that it represents a werewolf. And they define a werewolf as a man who changes into a wolf, quote, at certain times of the year. And as a matter of fact, several times throughout the film, you hear the poem recited, even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright.
3: So that is with silver so full moons in the original or do they not? Reconcile?
2: It was not confined to full moons. Okay. So that night, uh, Larry, Gwen and Gwen's friend, Jenny go to visit a uh, gypsy campsite to get their fortunes told. And there is a sudden wolf attack on Gwen's friend, Jenny. Larry ends up killing the beast with his walking stick with the silver head on it, but he is bitten on the chest in the process. And a gypsy fortune teller named Maleva reveals that the animal that bit him was actually her son Bela in the form of a wolf. And she also reveals that since Larry was bitten by a werewolf, he will in turn. Become a werewolf. And so Larry transforms into a werewolf. He kills a local grave digger and he wakes up the next morning. He doesn't quite remember things. And finally, you know, he comes to the realization that uh, he has to overcome this condition or be killed. And he is bludgeoned to death in the end by his father, spoilers with his own silver walking stick as he's about to attack Gwen, his father kills him with his silver walking stick. And the silver walking stick, I just want to talk about this real quick is one of my favorite movie props of all time. Really, why is that? Just because the it's just such a neat thing to look at. It's so integral to the plot, specifically in the original. It's it is in this one too, just not quite as much. It
3: looks. Does it have a wolf's head like this one? It
2: does. They look very similar. The design is very similar. The only the big difference is that in the original, it's not also a sword or a dagger. Okay. It's just a. So it's just just a walking stick. It's just a cane. Yeah. Okay. So then in this film, it takes place in the Victorian era in eighteen ninety one in blackmore england and the story starts off very much the same you know we have lawrence talbot who's never called larry (laughs) because this is 1891 Uh, lawrence talbot comes back to his ancestral home after his brother's fiancee asks him to come saying that his brother ben has died And his brother Ben was attacked by a werewolf, we come to find out. And so... Which they don't know at first. They don't know that at first. But that opening scene in the 2010 film where we see him get killed, such a big difference there in...
3: In visual effects and everything from the, yes, from the original.
2: Not just visual effects, but just in setting up the story. Okay. But anyway, so the story is uh, very much the same... In many ways, the one big difference here is that Lawrence's mother is given some attention in that she had committed suicide 25 years earlier when Lawrence was a child and Lawrence wound up spending some time in a mental hospital or an asylum because he was suffering from delusions, they said, that were connected to the event. Then another huge difference is we find out that the Initial werewolf in this movie is Sir John Talbot, Lawrence's father, and he's the one that killed Ben, the brother, and he's the one that bites Lawrence, and he's the one that killed the mother 25 years ago, and there's a big <laughs> a big <laughs> showdown in this movie. Between father and son as werewolves, and in the end, he ends up being killed by Gwen instead of his father. And
3: that's, that's the big difference. Uh, nice. That's a that's a great synopsis for any of our listeners. If you were looking to not get spoiled, this is not the show for you. Right. Um, so yes. So. <laughs> But yeah, no. That's, I think that's a great synopsis of the two different movies and where they are different. And they're only different in a few places, right? Uh, the, the overarching theme is similar. And those few changes, which we'll definitely discuss more, uh, those few changes do make a difference in, in the movie. And, and uh, I, I, think that, I think for the better. Yeah. How were you personally introduced to the film?
2: I was personally introduced to this film just, well, I was always a bit bitter toward remakes and reboots, specifically reboots of films and franchises that I love and have grown up with. And the universal monsters mm-hmm. are sacred to me. And so I was never really keen to see this one. But after I started to grow out of that phase,
3: I'm like, okay, I got to give this film <laughs> a shot. Well, so now, now, well, now you've brought up an interesting question for me. So then if they're sacred to you, which, which one of the universal monsters is your favorite? Frankenstein, bar none. Okay, all right. Well, I guess we'll, we'll have to cover that in a different episode. All right. So <laughs> on, onto the back onto the Wolfman.
2: But yeah. So uh, I wound up watching this and feeling that it really, for a remake, is a good effort on the part of the filmmakers. Thought it was, and we'll get more into that. But uh, how about you? Uh, how are you interested? Um,
3: so I saw the trailer for this movie when it first came out. Um, it looked very interesting, and it was one of those movies that was. Uh, on my list of movies to see at the time and for reasons that i cannot articulate for you now because i don't remember i just never got around to (laughs) um and so the uh, seeing this movie uh, the first time i saw it was in preparation uh, for for this podcast well better late than never right exactly exactly better late than never and before we talk about what we think about it uh why don't we uh talk about the critical consensus those Um, bastards Exactly, yeah. So those yeah, those, soulless, those soulless minions that uh, watch <laughs> these movies. So uh, the Rotten Tomatoes, I always like to start off with the Rotten Tomatoes recap. And uh, the recap of, of the uh, critical consensus seems to be that this is a suitably grand and special effects laden. The Wolfman suffers from a suspense deficient script and a surprising lack of genuine chills, which sounds bad. And in the, some of these bad reviews, you had some that were, you know, more well thought out and said, like, you know, uh, from the Washington Post, where it's while it's sleeker and more sophisticated than the Cheney version, this new Wolfman isn't any scarier. And then there was some that said, like, you know, the Wolfman delivers plenty of scares and an abundance of eviscerations, but director Joe Johnston doesn't take the film anywhere unexpected. Um, One of the few uh, good reviews, not few, I guess one of the good reviews was, uh, well, The Wolfman from Entertainment Weekly, The Wolfman, hoagy and uneven though it is, has the kind of authentic emotional hook that too many horror movies today don't have. And another one uh, is from Richard Roper, who uh, said, it's exactly what it's supposed to be, an upscale goth B-movie with dark humor and buckets of blood. (laughs) But not to be, <laughs> but not to be outdone, in the Wall Street Journal is that it is a film that begins with an eerie, gothic mist of suggestion and turns into a toothless exercise in the obvious. And one of the uh, worst reviews that I found was said, and I quote: "An ill-considered, utterly unnecessary remake." So, Ray was this remake utterly unnecessary?
2: Not as unnecessary as that reviewer's existence.
3: <laughs> well maybe the existence of the review i don't think we want to cause any harm to any reviewers no. so but yeah <laughs> no I, we're I, pacifists
2: I here okay. folks it's all in exactly, jest exactly yes
3: yeah so in talking about some of these specific criticisms of the film i, I think the one of the First one is about you know one of the first ones that jumped out to me was when people were saying that it was not scary, mm-hmm. right? And so and and that one is one that I, I think is it's going to depend on your familiarity with these type of movies, mm. right? So mm. is it the scariest movie I've ever seen? No, right? But sure. I think that there are it is it is laden with uh, jump scares. There's lots and lots of jump scares, right? And so I think that horror movies in in this genre as a whole have come forward enough and that we've we've now seen enough of them that jump scares don't get everybody. Right? right. You know, a lot of times you can you because you know, the the music starts playing in the background to get that little that tone and everything where it kind of rises a bit and you know it's coming. So since you're and you're already now having watched so many other horror movies are are ready for it and you're thinking, OK, this jump is going to happen. So when it does, you're not at that surprise because you were expecting it. And so I think that uh, that really is more a criticism of, uh, you know, in your experience and the, and. uh maybe the style of the jump scares, you know, like they were, they were true jump scares. It wasn't jump scares with gore because there was gore in the movie, but that wasn't jump scare, mm-hmm. right? Usually mm-hmm. when the gore happened, that was, it. They, the movie took its time with it where you know, you're you seeing the wolf actually rip out the guts of a person. <laughs> you know, the wolf man, when he bites someone and ripped them out and everything, and then it's kind of that long, drawn out, you know, gory thing like that, sure. which is which is gory and uneasy and makes you feel queasy, but it, it's not scary. And so I think that, That criticism to me is really, I I would, I would view that somewhat as unfair in that it's not trying to be, you know, the scariest movie you've ever seen psychologically Mm -hmm. freaking you out as much as it's going to produce the elements of the jump scares and then, you know, move, move forward from there with, with the rest of the story. Yeah. And you know something In, in
2: regards to a movie being scary, generally speaking, Personally, I find that movies that are set in times past, like this one is set in the Victorian era, I find those to be less scary personally, just because I cannot relate to that time period myself. I'm more inclined to be scared by something that I feel like I could be in that situation. You know what I mean?
3: I, I do. You do. So you're saying you don't feel that you could be chased in the woods with nothing to run but a horse and buggy? No, it's not that. I mean, so, <laughs> yeah.
2: No, I mean, I'm not saying that I can't be scared by such right. films. I'm just saying that for me, it's a bit
3: harder. Yes. No, I, I, I completely understand, and I, I feel the same way. There is a lot of times, especially with jump scares, and really, yeah, you know, really, jump scares really rely on. You need to, before the jump scare happens, identify with the character that is about to be scared. scared. Yes. You need to feel like you're in that same situation. And uh, you're right, when a movie's set in the 1800s, you don't necessarily feel like you're going to be in that situation. Sure. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So another criticism of it is is that it there is nothing new that it is the uh, well, same saying, as same as the original. I right? think
2: that's it, BS and a half. Yes, it,
3: it really it really is. And so I think the problem with movies like this is when the, they are a faithful remake mm-hmm. to the original, mm-hmm. they don't they don't they tend to not get as much credit. Yeah, because because people. Seem to our people or critics, I'll lump them all together or separate them out, however you you decide to interpret that sentence. People and critics uh, want to, you know, want a remake of the movie classic to surprise you and to like fix the story, right? Well, and if you really enjoy this story, especially if you enjoy the original, I mean, the story doesn't really need need fixing, right? Mm -hmm. You, You add a tweak here and there that makes it a little bit different, but you still want the remake to not go in an entirely foreign area. Right, because if it does, then at that point you're just incorporating a famous name for your completely original idea, right? You know, so and, then we're, and there's plenty of movies like that. I mean, you know, like Miami Vice, right? Oh yeah, it, it, it had nothing to do with the actual story of where of, of the show, right? And so I think that one of the things that this movie does well is it does it keeps the original story mostly intact, right? It does, you know, you've already outlined some of the major changes that they've done but if you think about those major changes it's really just a major change to one or two characters but beyond that it keeps the same themes and the same uh, principles and the same idea as the original movie and it just it's going to update how it looks and it's going to update the, the visual effects i mean they won an oscar for the for the makeup in this and so you know that they they really did a, a good job of making it visually more modern and appealing but while still staying true To the original story and not just using the Wolfman as a title Mm -hmm. to make, you know, a whole separate movie.
2: Right. And that's one of the things that the filmmakers, Joe Johnston in particular, was really looking at in making this movie is what Claude Rains as Sir John Talbot in the 1941 film touched on whenever he said that there's a beast in all of us. One of the main focuses, if not the main focus in this movie, is the primal nature inside of man. And this guy turns into a werewolf, but is he changing into something new or is it unleashing something that was already within him kind of thing? And so that was more what they were focusing on there.
3: really. And you know, I think that honestly that criticism really speaks to some of the strength of the movie and this this the story, right? So separating it from the movie, the story itself, because I think of this story less as whether or not it's something inside of him. That is, you know, the savagery of man about, is, is it inside of him? Is it being put inside of him? Or, you know, you know, it's a put inside of him Is coming out or was it already there and is it coming out? I I look at it much more as Lawrence is a tortured figure. Hmm, and that sure. he's, you know, he's basically a, a tortured figure throughout the movie. And that he really, you know, conveys the torture of the early part of seeing his mother's, uh well, really what he saw was his mother's murder mm-hmm. and then being mm-hmm. told that what he saw was his mother's suicide being committed to a, a psychiatric institution at that point and, and having to go through the trauma of the treatments there to the point of where he then started to believe that he saw a suicide and not a murder and that he, the trauma of him actually then leaving home, right? Leaving home at an early age because he felt that he would could not thrive or live or survive in this environment, right? In the environment of his father's home. He goes off and then becomes an actor and apparently that was moderately successful and we can you know, you can break down. You know, while the movie never discusses anything with that you can break down the ideas about whether or not that's an extension of his trauma that he's trying to. He makes his life being someone else as opposed to mm. trying to make his profession being himself, right? And then even when he comes back, the, there's all the trauma about his wanting to understand what happened to his brother, uh, not being able to relate well to people, and then eventually, you know, the the physical trauma of okay, he's now bitten by a werewolf and he becomes a werewolf. And he wants to be. I think, and even in that, he wants to try to be a better person and try to get beyond that. But every full moon, he's going to turn into a werewolf, and he recognizes that he has no real control or agency over that. And so then he is yet again being victimized, as it turns out, by his father again, hmm. right? And so that that I, that it seems to me it is a movie of where, for me, I got that he was he was a victim, right? And he was a victim, and he was suffering and dealing with trauma throughout the whole movie and trying to trying to do with that as best he can. But getting another read from it to me is perfectly logical, perfectly logical, perfectly reasonable. And that to me is part of the strength of the story in that I, I see one thing I watch the story and I see one thing with these characters and then you can watch it and see a wholly different thing. And, and neither opinion I think would be wrong.
2: Yeah. And you know what, what you were just describing there with these characters to me, is the reason why this is a successful remake. You know, remakes often suffer from being too much of a clone of their predecessor. Yes, and very much so. perfect example is Gus Van Zandt's 1998 remake of Psycho, which was atrocious, an abomination. It's garbage. It should be, you know, it should be, all prints well, should be burned.
3: <laughs> hey. I'm I'm not sure how you feel about this. Could you uh, delve a little bit deeper? And let me know what, what you really think. <laughs> <So>. But
2: <laughs> remakes do tend to have that issue, and a good remake, like you said earlier, takes the core elements of the original, but does something new and relevant to its time that makes it its own unique animal. No pun intended. Yeah. One of the big changes here that really works is the father-son dynamic in this film. Now it's very different from the original because the original Larry comes home and he and his father are pretty much buds. And at the end of uh, the, that's not the case in this Right. One. His, his father <laughs> is insane. He's a terrible, <laughs> terrible manipulative person.
3: Y- yes. 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 He is. He is terrible and manipulative. sure but i i I think the father in his own way has a method Mm -hmm. to his madness but again it's it's it is there's a lot of madness to it but it is there's a method he has an idea about trying to you know really unleash in himself right now he's the character i see more of that where the monster is down within him and unlike his son who wants to be better he is more just Suppressing his werewolf mm. because he's supposed to, sure, right? But he what he really wants is to be the monster. He wants to unleash that inner monster in himself because he likes how that feels and he likes being that. But ever since he after he killed his wife, he recognized that that cost was so high that he started to suppress it and to try to lock himself up and hold it back and everything. But but in reality, he always wanted to be.
2: Right. And I I love the part, right before their big showdown, Larry takes Sing's gun, loads it with the silver bullets, and he actually attempts to shoot his father, only the bullets don't fire. And his father reveals, I removed the powder from those years ago. And so right there is really telling of what this character is like, because on the one hand he murdered the woman that he loved and he feels like he needs to be locked up during the full moon. But at the same time, he doesn't want this taken away from him either.
3: Right. Right. I I think though, that part of that too could just be, I also looked at it as self-preservation, right? Well, sure. Recognize that he wants to suppress the monster and not let it out but he doesn't want to die. Yeah. Right. So I think, I think he's more like, I'd like to not be a monster, but I'd like to, you know, I'm going to suppress this monster, but you know, push comes to shove. Then I'd want to keep living.
2: Right. I love the way that family life is portrayed in this movie because so often there can be hurts that run really deep that never really fully heal. And unlike a lot of movies, even, you know, the original Wolfman where, Things with the family are kind of happy fairy tale ish. This seemed a little bit more realistic in that here's this estranged son coming back to his father's house and they still don't see eye to eye and they never really get to the point where they reconcile.
3: No, no, they're, yeah, this is not the movie if you want to see a, uh, familial relationship healed at the end this, 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 that does not happen here of the last of the main criticisms that are given to this movie do you find that it was either a uh, bland or boring right were you entertained by the movie even understanding that the story was similar to the one that you already knew so you kind of knew where the movie was going to go but like was it still entertaining for
2: you? i think the reason people find this to be bland and boring is because the story takes its time you know it is not overly fast it's not even fast
3: Whereas fast and furious. It is
2: not right. Whereas the original movie had a runtime of 70 minutes.
3: So this one had a runtime of, I think it was about 144 minutes. Right. So I will I will double check that. Well, no, no, yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's no. only an hour and a half. It's not long. No, this... Yeah, it's a, yeah uh, well, yeah, an hour and 43. Okay. So that's 103 minutes. Yeah. Oh,
2: I watched the unrated version.
3: Oh, okay. Well, how long is the unrated version? Two hours. Oh, okay. So then you were... Uh, but as you were saying, so then you think that people's uh, problems with the movie was because of its slow pacing? I think so. And
2: I wouldn't even call it slow pacing. I just think that it's taking the necessary time to tell the story because one thing that Benicio del Toro in particular does well is he acts, you know, he can act without speaking. He is very good at emoting. You can see a lot in his eyes and in his facial expressions. And there's so much, particularly in the first half of the movie where you see him alone in the house, basically confronting his past and meeting up with his ghosts again for the first time in forever. There's just a lot of quiet time. Let's call
3: it. No, I, I agree. And, and, uh, you know, picking up on the, uh, of the, the acting, which is one of the things that I think is really Kind of the strongest part of this. I'm going to start with uh, what yeah, Emily Blunt is Gwen and her performance in it, and how. Um, and I'll get back to and I'll circle back around. This will join up to your Benicio del, del Toro point because I think he did a, he did a, a great job in this movie. Um, but Emily Blunt's performance is is you know very understated, right? Oh, yeah. It's a very understated performance, and it's a nice even. You know, she's like the the even straight, uh, for lack of a better term, she's the even straight man throughout the movie. She's really the only character in the movie that's normal. Fair. Yes. Right? Everybody else is, you know, is crazy in one way or another, right? Um, and so, um, but the one thing about her performance too, which I thought was interesting in how it ties to Benicio, is that throughout the movie, so she starts out wanting uh, Lawrence to come home because his brother Ben has been uh, killed and she wants them to know that it's, that it's happened and kind of come back for the funeral. Mm-hmm. And then he's driven to find out why. But there's, there's a feeling and a tension throughout the movie that Gwen and Lawrence... Are going to become romantically involved. Right. You know, and, and it's a slow, it slowly builds throughout the movie. And you think that, that you know, you kind of start to look at it like any other movie. You say, oh, okay, well, the, they've now checked off all the various boxes of, okay, these people are now going to become romantically involved. Now, thankfully in the movie, they don't. They're, they never do. Right. But, and it really when you watch it and pay attention into in Emily Blunt's performance and Gwen as the character, Gwen never flirts with Lawrence, never, never intimates that she feels anything about him other than, you know, like almost say my, I would love you because you you are the brother of the man that I love. Right. And at no point that, you know, so there's nothing that she gives off or any signals that she sends off that makes you think that this is going to happen. Really, really what you're reacting to is Benicio Del Toro's performance as Lawrence, where Lawrence is acting as if it's going to happen. Right. And he he is starting to get feelings for the woman that would have been his sister-in-law but was not. And that his performance makes it where what you then are reacting more to his actions of he feels that these signals are being sent, as opposed to the performance that Emily Blunt's delivering, where there really aren't any. And, And I think that it's these. And especially in this type of movie, those little nuances of not only the acting and the story and, and the writing that, you know, come together in a really good way that you know sometimes people could miss or not appreciate because it's not in your face, right? It mm-hmm. is it is kind of you have to watch it, pay attention, and kind of slow down and enjoy the movie in order to really see that this is what's happening because it's 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 not being, you know, skywritten for you or you know being done very <laughs> obviously. I agree with
2: you, Uh but let me ask you, what, what did you think of the scene where they're skipping stones? Because for me, I thought that that was a key scene for the character of Gwen. And the reason I say that is, throughout the film, she has been pretty much the grieving would-be widow. She, her fiancé has been killed. She's trying to find out what happened to him. She's grieving. She's trying to stay sane in this situation and there's not much to her as you said, but you have the scene where Larry is skipping stones across the lake and he teaches her how to do it. And in that moment you see her really relax and unwind for a moment for what seems like the first time in forever And for the first time, you see a smile on her face and you see her laugh whenever she finally gets the stone to skip. And that, to me, really said a lot because in this tiny little moment that seems like nothing, you get a moment between these two characters, almost kind of like a meet cute where they first connect.
3: Yeah, I I see what you're saying with that. I think that I viewed that connection though to be childlike, right? In that it was it was the the joy and experience you learned from learning how to skip rocks, right? Because you know I I count myself among and I, and I assume I'm I'm among the many people that learned how to skip rocks as a kid, <laughs> and and I and I view that as you know them the bond that they're having is very much like in the happiness that she's experiencing is kind of like the, a childlike where you're discovering a new thing and it's a fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I think it creates a bond of, you know, of friendship or really caring between the two characters. Uh, although I think Gwen, she always struck me as the type of woman, uh, the character Gwen struck me the type of woman where she was going to love and accept Lawrence as much as she could from the beginning because Lawrence was the brother of the man that she loves, right, and so she was always going to then foster and feel that sense of you know familial uh love and caring towards it and so I think this moment was you know where it was like you know almost like as if they were kids and being brother and sister from from her perspective, but it was it was very childlike and so it was it was a great scene and it definitely added to the bond of them and and I think it added. Uh, somewhat, really more for the on the bonding part for Lawrence uh, in his part to bond to her because I think that he had been kind of keeping her at arm's length up until that point. And in that scene, it was like, "Hey, well, okay, we're actual. I don't know that we're actual people's right, but that we have we have now this shared experience that we can then, you know, think back about fondly in, in our relationship. And you know, it helped me grow to care about you more. Okay.
2: I can see that. I think I disagree with you a bit, but I can totally see
3: that. Oh, really? So what what part do you disagree disagree with?
2: I liked my version of it better.
3: (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, uh, The other part of the acting, though, that is something that it's – I guess I want to know what you think of this, because I think you can take us either way. Okay. So uh, Anthony Hopkins in this movie as uh, Sir John Talbot basically is chewing up scenery everywhere he goes. Sure. He is definitely overacting, and, and but I think it stays with the theme of the movie, right? He is really kind of just, uh, you know, just kind of overdoing a lot of things. His motivations, uh, the character's motivations, I think, are strange at first to me, at least to me they were. Like, you didn't understand, like, is he okay with this son? Because you know, he calls him the prodigal son. So, right. you know, in the story of the prodigal son, the father really loves and accepts the son who came back where I don't think in this instance, that's really what happened. <laughs> right. You know, so you think like, does he really care about his son and really glad to see him back? Is he still bitter about the, about things in the past or that, that, you know, things in the past that have happened uh, or, or what I, I found, I ultimately thought that I uh, just decided that Sir John Talbot really hates his son and, um, th- you know, doesn't, doesn't want anything really good to happen to him, but then he wants whatever the, Bad that happens to his son to be inflicted by him, sure right, and you 'll find that a lot there are multiple moments in this movie where Sir John Talbot does something horrendous to his son, and at the same time where other people could do something horrendous to Lawrence, but Sir John Talbot gets away and protects him, and then just protects him, turns around and says well i 'm going to beat on him, almost as if like nobody gets to be horrible to my son but me hmm. right because because i hate him but the the all of that is all of that was really to say that you know the, the uh, since we're talking about the acting I was, I was curious about what your opinion was of the way anthony hopkins was out because he was a much you know while emily blunt and benicia del toro and even to a lesser degree hugo weaving was were providing more subtle performances i mean his was very kind of bombastic and and over the top and so that there are some people that thought you know, some people liked it, some people didn't like it. So I was just curious what your opinion was of, of his acting.
2: I thought that the way he approached this role was very unique. I thought it was different uh, in that you have this guy who, when you meet him, he seems, he seems somewhat welcoming. He seems, you know, likable enough, except that there's just a little bit of venom behind everything that he says and does.
3: You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. No, I I think the same thing because you know, as as I stated earlier, I'm I'm on the record of saying I think that Sir John Talbot in this movie hates his son,
2: right, Lawrence. And you know something, I I didn't think about this until I watched it this most recent time, but I think that his bitterness towards Larry comes from Larry Larry, Larry. <laughs> my bad <laughs> I think his bitterness towards Lawrence comes from Lawrence's leaving to go pursue an acting career and i say that because John Talbot the father kind of reveals to Lawrence that he was upset that Gwen had come and had met Ben and was basically going to be taking Ben away from him, and so that made me think maybe the reason that he's so bitter towards Lawrence is because Lawrence left. Just a thought.
3: You know, I hadn't thought of that until you mentioned it, but that is, uh that's a good theory. I'll have to think about that for a bit. I, I always, I, I was on the impression he hated him just from, uh from the beginning. But yeah, that yeah, that is interesting. Maybe that is what it is. Maybe he, the father, is feeling that he doesn't want. Oh, to be abandoned by his children. He wants his children to stay with him and stay by his side through everything. And that could be part of the way he, uh, Sir Lawrence... Sorry, sorry, Sir John is dealing with being this monster, that he feels that he needs them to accept him as the monster, even though it was not his intention to become one, and that he loves being it, but he wants them to accept them anyway. And he's finding that they're not, right? And they never... And the movie never really explains why, um, you know, Sir John killed his wife. I mean, it just says that he became a werewolf and he did it because it's from his perspective with a lack of memory of the, uh, of, of the venerable motivations, just knowing that it happened. But, uh, you know, so that maybe, you know, there could be some subtext there. Like maybe the wife also didn't accept him and that's why. Or, well, I don't think. It, what? But,
2: I, was just gonna, I don't think there was any real motive for him killing her other than he was an out of control werewolf. I mean, a werewolf very well could be a, yeah. a werewolf. Just kills; it, it doesn't continue to be the person that he was before the transformation, so to speak. No, f- fair enough.
3: So, uh, think of other things that were good about the movie. Um, I think one of the things that is good about the movie is uh, the makeup and the effects. Now, yeah, I was just the about to the thing that. about is, and makeup and effects always has a shelf life. Mm-hmm. And so when watching this movie, you do have to recognize, okay, this movie is now 10 years old mm-hmm. and 10 years in makeup and effects is, you know, a hundred these days. right? <laughs> so it looks good. It's much better than the original and it does, it does a good job of, you know, what it's pr- trying to portray. Uh, I think that the one thing that was, if you are, are watching it recently, and that is that you have to kind of which I would say with any movie with the makeup or effects, you have to kind of forgive it a bit when it ages, right? Mm -hmm. It's going, there are, there are going to be improvements in newer movies that you've seen now that look better than what you're watching at this point, but watching in this older movie. But then at that point, you know, that was, it was, it was great. Right. And so they did a really good job of making the werewolves not, you know, I, I think I actually really appreciated that. It looked like they were, it's much more makeup and, you know, creature effects, not CGI, Exactly, right? You know, and yeah. that they, they actually look like, you know, the, you know, and so underneath it, when uh, Benicia del Toro and Anthony Hopkins are werewolves, they look like Benicia del Toro and Anthony Hopkins, yes. right? And they, you can tell that, I mean, the obvious CGI is when his fingers bend the wrong direction and his feet get bigger and everything. That's, that's obviously not, that, that's not makeup effects. But but it, they did a really good job as far as portraying this and what those look like visually, while still you know staying a bit understated and keeping with the theme, right? They, they could have gone much bigger. They could have CGI him. They could have made it where when he turned into a wolf, he grew in size, uh, because there's been some that done that. So they could make him where he's like the Hulk. So <laughs> they'd have to CGI the whole thing, you, you know, or things like that. And so I think that the the, the visual uh, uh, the visuals of this movie. Really worked uh, to me in the sense that they they did a good job of enhancing this understated, and I'm I'm saying understated, which is an odd way to describe the Wolfman, but this understated story and this understated the way the way it's done enhanced it and not overpowered it. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I I really really love the monster design in this movie. Jack Pierce did the original monster design for the Wolfman. Jack Pierce is a legend. He created the monster makeup for the Wolfman, for Frankenstein's monster, for the mummy, for so much. And as a matter of fact, he was the inspiration for Rick Baker, who did the movie makeup for this iteration of the Wolfman. But I remember, even though I was kind of bitter toward remakes when this initially came out, I remember seeing the look of the monster and just being in awe of how it was equally something new and equally a tribute to the design of Jack Pierce. Because if you look at Benicio's Mm, monster and Loncini Jr.'s monster, if you put them both side by side, you can tell the basis is there. They look very similar, except that this one is amped up, so to speak. You know, it's got bigger teeth. It's got darker hair. It looks a little more realistic-ish. <laughs> I mean, it's a werewolf. <laughs> a mean, werewolf isn't real. Right. But.
3: So, so you're, you're saying it looks more like the real were- werewolves you've seen in the past. Right. And what's interesting
2: yeah. is this werewolf was also made with yak hair, like the original was. Right. If that means anything to anybody. <laughs>
3: Yeah, no, the the original with the with the yak hair to, to they did the makeup on the feet, uh, on his feet and everything to make it where when it when it grew everywhere grew in quotes
2: in the old movies. Yeah, yeah, but I will say my one big gripe with this movie is the CGI. I hate 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 the CGI in this movie because it just looks so awful. And I could forgive it if it was not for the fact that Rick Baker who did the monster effects for this movie, he's known for his terrific monster effects. Okay, Ocean, have you ever seen an American werewolf in London?
3: I have not. What's the matter I, with uh, you? Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to to
2: pause this podcast so
3: I can go show (laughs) this
2: movie. But um, in An American Werewolf in London, it it has perhaps the greatest werewolf transformation of all time. It is all practical effects. It it looks painful. It looks awful. It is awesome to watch. And it was done by Rick Baker.
3: So then the CGI you don't like is the transformation, not all CGI. The, not the okay, so, like because yeah, the 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 CGI of him running, right. where every now and, oh. and again that he's running and the camera is on his face, yeah, as the werewolf, and then we goes from two legs to four, and at that, I mean that is, I just forgave it because of how old the movie sure, is. Sure, but that I mean, that one yeah.
2: doesn't bother me so much. I think because it's you know it's blurry, it's action, you know, but like the right. the. Anytime you see an animal in this movie, with the exception of the dog that's in the house, like you see the bear that the gypsy owns, or you see there's a scene with like a a reindeer or an elk or some kind of antlered animal. I don't know what it is. They're clearly CGI. As a matter of fact, I actually read that the gypsy's bear was recycled animation from the golden compass. Okay. <laughs> they turn well, you know they just turned the polar bear into a brown bear. Hey, you gotta reduce costs wherever you can. <laughs> but the gore, like whenever the werewolf would attack somebody, I would say 75% of the time it was CGI. And it was so annoying because I am a huge, huge fan of practical gore effects.
3: Okay. So even when the so you think that it was CGI they didn't use uh, cuz I didn't notice that as much with the gore. Right? With the gore I thought it, I thought that would that looked more like practical effects to me.
2: But There were uh, some I mean, like, and there might have been more CGI gore effects in the unrated version that I watched.
3: Oh, okay. Yeah, no I saw the regular theatrical release. Right.
2: So there yeah. might have been way more in my version than in yours, but there it is. But that That's my one big gripe with this movie is the CGI. But uh, whenever they did do makeup or practical effects, I thought it was great.
3: Good, good. Is there anything else that you wanted to uh, discuss about that we've left out discussing about the movie?
2: Well, this isn't like a really big point or anything. But one thing that I did want to just say real quick that I thought was really cool was Maleva, the gypsy woman, uh, the old gypsy woman. You know who I'm talking yes. about?
3: Yeah. So yeah. So the one that saved uh, uh, Lawrence at the beginning of the movie, even though she was uh, was another gypsy, recommended that she let him die. Right. Did you uh, catch who played her? Don't look it up. Don't look it up. Um, I did not. I did not catch who
2: played her. Okay. I have to. Have to look Don't look it up. it up. I'm gonna tell okay, you. Yeah. I'm
3: gonna tell you. All right. Because
2: who played her? I I never realized it the first time I saw it, and then I watched it this time, and I'm like, oh man, I never realized that was her. That is Geraldine Chaplin, the daughter of Charlie Chaplin. Oh, okay, yeah, no, I did I did not catch that at all. Apart from being the daughter of Charlie Chaplin, she's a, a pretty good actress in her own right. She's had her own acting career, so yeah. And then, other than Geraldine Chaplin, one other thing that I just wanted to briefly mention is that I thought that the production design for this movie was pretty great. I, I love that. It was, I love the designs of, you know, Talbot hall of the crypt, even the village and just the way that they did the woods and how everything had the fog and the mist. Uh, I just thought that it was really, really cool.
3: Yes. I think they did a good job with all that, the set pieces did set the tone for, uh, the rest of the movie, I I don't I uh, did not look up beforehand where they shot all of this, but it did uh, with the mists and, and the and the weather and everything. It allowed things to be omin- ominous and and creepy. Sometimes even when I don't think that was necessarily the intent, right? It was more the intent of this is just what this you know what England would look like weather wise this time of year. Yeah. And then when when putting it in that setting, it then makes it where that you know it makes the 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 setting allows a little bit more uh of a chill factor to to occur throughout the movie. Normally you would just force it through you know either jump scares or something psychological. I think I'm ready to move on to the filmmakers goals.
2: All right. Pretty much I mean this one's kind of cut and dried as far as what the filmmakers' goals were. Uh they were remaking A monster movie and if you wanted to take it a little bit further like i mentioned before joe johnston the director by the way real quick are you familiar with joe johnston
3: i am not i looked up his uh credits on imdb i was not familiar with much of him before i know that it had been six years his movie before it was hidalgo and had been that was six years before this movie but then after this he did direct captain america the first avenger right so, so I like that one, do you know, he, <laughs> but did you know,
2: do you know what he's more famous for other than being a director? I, I do not. He is famous for his work on star Wars as a visual effects artist. Oh, he okay. helped design okay. the millennium Falcon, the X-wings, uh, the, uh, other spaceships, Boba Fett, stuff like that.
3: Oh, wow. Well that, yeah, that, that is, uh, clearly going to be one of the most impressive parts, uh, <laughs> impressive lines on his resume.
2: But uh, anyway, not to get off track, like I said before, Joe Johnston was really wanting to touch more so on the beast in all of us and the primal nature, the duality of man kind of thing. But in general, again, modern version of a beloved monster movie. Do you think he and the other filmmakers on this film achieved
3: their goal? I do. I you summarize summarized what I think the goal of the movie was, which was to create a, a modern version of this movie. And so I think they really did achieve that, right? I think that when you are doing a remake, a lot of times less is more. You know, you, you definitely... You know, I understand that it's, it's very rarely going to be well-received that you'd want to make an exact remake, you know, shot for shot from the original movie, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, just tweak it a little bit so it's a little bit different and there's a little bit fresh and maybe a couple of things here and there. If you've seen the original movie, that would be different. But to still stay in that lane of what that movie, what it meant and what it what it was for, right? And so I think that they they do – a I think that they really do achieve that goal in so far as it being a movie that definitely stays true to its roots, pays homage to what to what it is, and then provides a, a few other avenues off ramps. Right. You know, so like, like we've discussed earlier that, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 I, I view it more as a character drama about a, a tortured man and him trying to come to grips with all of the trauma that he experienced throughout his life. Right. And you, know, and you could look at it as you're looking at the uh, savagery, the inner savagery of man, right? That that the movie, and, that, and that's just two points of view. I'm sure if we sat down and thought about it long enough, we'd come up with three or four more, right? Sure. And so then that to me is part of the strength of the movie in that it keeps the original idea and tweaks it just enough to let you come away with it with different perspectives and different points of view.
2: Yeah so that being
3: said how do you rank it rate it rank it do you want me to go first or would you like to go first on the ranking
2: i asked you first so you okay fine
3: can... no <laughs> Are fair, you enough, fair enough fair so enough you asked first you're so, afraid aren't you on my i'm sorry you're afraid aren't you oh no i'm oh i'm I'm not afraid i, I i've i've uh so my flick chart i this movie ranked uh 243 out of 400 Okay. um and so out of 400 for me and so that you know it, it, it was the middle of the row, a little bit a little bit below uh, five, a little bit below 500 the flick chart said i should recommend it to two stars although to me that's too low sure I, I really view this more as two and a half stars and, and re- really you know while i've been talking about how i like the how good the movie is and how well made it is i think that my my number my review is not a reflection on the movie itself the movie itself is very well done haven't seen it you should although if you're at this point in the podcast and you haven't seen it we kind of direct <laughs> for you but you know you might you can watch it anyway if you want right you know and so or if you have seen it watch it again right but and it's it's a good movie what what i've what i've come to learn throughout this process really about myself recently is i'm not a big fan of monster movies fair enough and so it's yeah and so because i'm not a, a giant fan of monster movies to me there's aspects of this movie where it's like i understand and appreciate where it's going. I understand and appreciate what it's doing. And I think it's doing a great job of it. I just recognize that this it's outside of what I tend to just enjoy watching. I just I'm not into the you know the 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 mummy, the Frankenstein movies, the wolfman, the Dracula, the, the old monster movies. I'm just not I've learned I'm not into them. And it was actually I found it interesting in in the process of this podcast. And I think I maybe owe, owe you a debt of gratitude where I did not consciously realize i had that bias until i saw this movie because this was the first movie where i'm watching it and i go no i can understand objectively i am watching a good movie but i still i still personally am not enjoying it and i think that is just because i just i'm not into this genre so what was your rate well on my
2: flick chart it wound up at a 63 percent However, I have way more movies on my flick chart than I like than dislike. It's not like a (laughs) 50-50 kind of thing. So star-wise, I give it 3.5, and and I'm so close to giving it 4, but I just can't seem to get quite there. So 3.5 is where I stay on the star rating. I think that as a remake... They made a valiant effort, and I think they pulled off a decent movie, and then some.
3: I concur. And so then I guess the the final evaluation, does this film deserve the bad rap that it gets? No, son! (laughs) Way to keep it succinct. (laughs) <laughs> so, <laughs> I try. Uh, yes, I, I agree with you. No, it is not. It does not deserve that rap. It is. It is a well acted and a very good update of a, of an old Monster B movie. And so I think that it's it's definitely worth a watch if you haven't seen it. And you're listening to my voice now. I'm sorry we wrecked it for you, but you should still see it. It's an enjoyable movie. But yeah, and if you have seen it before and you think maybe that it wasn't, you know, you didn't, it wasn't necessarily your cup of tea. You didn't think it was that good. You definitely give it another shot. Think about think about things we've been talking about throughout this podcast. And, uh, yeah, give it give it another chance. I think you'll find that it is a much better movie than uh, than what you're what you've been hearing about in reviews. Yeah, we well, we hope we can be
2: persuasive. If not, we do have. I mean, uh, how how about the, how about no. Never mind. <laughs>
3: exactly. And if you don't agree with us, we'll find you. Where you live. <laughs> so. <laughs>
2: so, this has been Silver Linings, part of the Next Real Family of Film Podcasts on TrueStory.fm. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and that we may have even inspired you to give this movie a second chance. If you'd like to get more involved with the Next Real community visit thenextreel.com slash membership for just a dollar a month you can become a one reeler and join our online community in our discord server and for a few dollars more a month become a two reeler supporter and join us for show live streams as we record early access to shows in your very own personal podcast feed and access to the super secret member channels in discord plus you can now support with a single annual donation at either level Thank you to everyone who's joined us and to all who are checking us out. Your support allows us to keep producing and growing the next real family of podcasts here at truestory.fm. See you in the next episode.